Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, we have a very exciting guest who we could talk to for hours, Martin Harris, the author of Poker and Pop Culture, telling the story of America's favorite card name, a book that came out June of this year, 2019. Martin also has a PhD in English literature and is an editor at Poker News and a frequent reporter for the last decade for the Poker Stars blog. He's also a professor at UNC Charlotte and there he gives a class on poker in American film and culture. That's a class they didn't offer when I was at NYU. Um, you also might know Martin as Shortstacked Seamus or his Twitter handle at Hardboiled Poker. Um, thanks so much, Martin, for joining me on the grid to talk about a hand that seemed to defy the odds in your own experience, a Jack Four suited. Can you tell us about why you chose this hand? Hey, Jennifer, I'm so glad to step into the grid. This is I'm such a fan of the, the show. Um, yes, this Jack Four suited was a hand that, for some reason, kind of stood out for me uh, when I was playing online poker a lot way back in the day. I had done this kind of early check on uh, Poker Tracker and realized I was winning a lot with Jack Four suited, and it kind of stood out for me. And so when we talked about me coming on the show, I started looking for a hand with Jack Four suited. And I actually had some of the old hand histories from, and this is, I'm talking about like 15 years ago, but uh, I, it was a struggle to kind of find one. So I play in this home game. It's once a month, it's low stakes, and we just play a tournament. And I started, every time I went, I was like, if I ever get Jack Four suited, I am definitely going to play it and then talk to Jennifer about it. Uh, and so I finally did. I finally picked up Jack Four suited. And the hand itself actually didn't turn out to be that exciting, although I did win the hand, which I seemed to be doing all the time back when I was playing Jack Four Suited in online poker, where we play, it's uh, like I say, it's a low-stakes home uh, home game. There's a lot of kind of uh, passive play, a lot of calling, not a lot of raising, so I guess I'm not sort of dealing with a lot of people playing back at me uh, in this game, and actually a lot of people limping in before the flop which enabled me to limp in with my Jack-4 suited from the cutoff. A couple of players had limped. I limped. The blinds came in. And the flop actually came Jack-4 deuce. I had two pair right off the bat, although no one had showed much interest uh, pre-flop. Although I should, I should say, in this sort of home game, and people maybe have played in these games before, people will limp with monsters, right? They'll limp with jacks or queens. or You know, they just don't like to raise even when they should. Uh, Ace-King, you see that showing up a lot where people have limped in with Ace-King. But it checked around to me and I bet. 
both blinds stayed in. Uh, the other limpers left. The turn was a king. They checked to me, I bet, and they folded. And so that was that was the end of that. Um, but yet again, I was winning with Jack Four suited, uh, just as I seem to do more than I should have back in the day playing online. That is really interesting. So this home game that you play, what uh, professions are they usually from? These are actually people, for the most part, these are people who are at UNC Charlotte. So they're uh, faculty. They work in different uh, departments. These are casual players, recreational players. This home game has been going on for a long time, probably 10 years or more. I only got into it about a year ago. You know, it's just very fun and laid back and they play kind of this really slow structure, so it guarantees everybody gets to stick around for a couple of hours before people start getting knocked out, and it's a lot of fun. Oh, I love that. And have they taken your class or sat in in your class on American film and culture? <laughs> no, they well, they know about it, and they know about the book now as well. Um, and it's sort of an interesting situation because I'm, you know, I'm a pretty serious recreational player, right? I'm not like some of your other guests uh, who are who are going to contribute a lot more than I can as far as strategic advice goes. So I'm, you know, I feel like I'm a, I'm a decent player. I was a winning player when I played online. When I go into sort of and go play a tournament like a low-stakes tournament somewhere, I'm definitely going to be in the middle of the, the field as far as skill level goes. But then I get to go and play in this home game and I get to kind of be like, I'm, you know, pretend like I'm Dominic Nietzsche or something, and I can, <laughs> you know, sort of relatively speaking, I can sort of do things in that environment that I'm not so comfortable doing uh, when I play regular tournament. Oh, that is, sounds so fun. And it sounds like a really intelligent group of people. It's funny because in chess, if you're around so many intelligent people, people are like, oh, they're probably really good at chess, but there's not that same, you know, proxy for intelligence in poker. So the, the pressure is not as much on in these professors, is it? Yeah, it's true. And it's fun. So you have sort of fun. The table talk is great. They're definitely uh, versed in some of the, you know, things like starting hand selection, you know, with pot odds and things. But like I said before, there's a lot of limping, there's a lot of passive play, there's a lot of stuff that I could actually exploit maybe more than I do, which is another sort of factor. <laughs> you know how it goes with home games. You go and you get invited to a home game and you don't, you, you kind of want to, you know, both behave and play in a certain way that you keep getting invited back. <laughs> I don't really feel very encouraged to like, you know, three bet a lot or check raise a lot or kind of like really sort of pressure these guys uh, in ways where I actually, I guess, would probably increase my own variance in the game uh, by doing that. It would also just kind of make things, you know, much more competitive seeming maybe than, than it is otherwise. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it would make it more heated. I was going to say, you know, you could have you could have raised the Jack Four suited there, you know, ISO. Definitely, and I'll do that sometimes in this game. I'll get out of line and play these hands, kind of because I can, you know, because they sort of play in a way that allows me to do that, and at least feel more comfortable doing that than in another kind of environment. But on the other hand, then everybody might have just folded, and then you wouldn't have this great story for the grid. <laughs> Yeah, true. I read your blog and, it, you know, it was interesting from a, about 12 years ago when you talked about Jack Four Suited and your database of 50,000 plus hands that you compiled and how you noticed that in Showdown, you tended to do really well with Jack Four Suited, uh, just kind of showing the role that coincidence can play in a sample that's, um, you know, 50,000 plus. So uh, you actually wrote there that I might be a bit jingle brain, but I'm not insane. 
So I'm not <laughs> showing down Shinola like Jack Four suited unless I'm a likely winner. And you wrote that as a potential explanation for why your showdown winnings with Jack Four suited were so hefty. How do you feel reading back on that post now? You're talking about my blog, Hardball Poker. And I started this blog in 2006. And this is a post from just a couple of months after I started the blog. And as I was telling you, when I go back and read these posts, I kind of cringe a little bit. You know, I was still learning when I talk about especially strategy topics. I feel like, you know, we know so much more now. So go back and read these things. And I always sort of feel that way. But this is a fun kind of, it actually, I, I like this post a lot because I, like I said, I got Poker Tracker and I was really excited to share all these stats and talk about how when it came to showdowns, I was winning aces and kings were number one and number two out of the 169 hands. Uh, and I had a lot of instances where I played all 169 hands. And then Jack Four Suited was number three, although, of course, the numbers were, I, I wasn't getting to showdown quite as much. It was, it was a much smaller number of showdowns. Uh, but percentage-wise, uh, and I guess, the, I guess actually we're talking about the actual money I was making. It was third in line. And so it just kind of like baffled me, like, how could this be? Now I realize, I think something I didn't realize then, now I realize that even 50,000 hands isn't the greatest sample. Um, it seemed like a lot to me at the time, but I, I know that, you know, you can get some weirdness uh, even in not that number of hands. You know, it just set me sort of thinking, like, how do how does this happen? And I think, I, I guess I, I still feel good about my conclusion there that, you know, I wasn't getting to showdown with Jack Forsuited unless I had, you know, the flush or two pair or something uh, worth going, you know, that far with, uh, with the hands. So that kind of helped me understand that, I guess. One thing that reading your blog brought to my mind was that, okay, of course you won the most money with aces. And that's, uh, you know, going to be true for every poker player, unless they play like a very short you know, number of hands, but it, and, you know, so if you lose a big hand with aces, even in the biggest stage, I mean, you're still going to win money with that hand in your poker career. Uh, I mean, there could be some very bizarre exceptions to that, but hand like Jack four suited or 10, eight off. It's interesting to me that if you have like one career defining moment with that hand, like you win a big tournament with it, it's like, it's almost like you're never going to go in the red with it. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that's kind yeah. of funny where you can kind of attach more superstition and memory to some of these trash hands because you know by you're not going to play as many big pots with them so they're just going to kind of stick out in your head like the one hand that you did play with them live that kind of made or break a tournament that's true that'll skew the the numbers this is this story is actually making me think about uh, it's a kind of a childhood memory of mine and you're, you'll love this story i grew up and became an english major and english literature phd and everything but i've always been like you i've been fascinated with numbers and grids and things like this and so I, there's this when i was i don't know how old maybe six or seven or eight or something i discovered that when you roll two dice that the number that you most often get is seven, right? The total when you roll two dice. Uh, that's the most in terms of probabilities. And so I actually did a, an experiment where I don't remember how many times, 100 or 500. I rolled two dice a number of times and wrote it down to see if seven would be the most common uh, total that I would end up with. I think it was like 500 times or something. And when I was done and added them all up, I had rolled five the most <laughs> instead of seven. This was sort of a similar uh, analogous sort of thing where it's, you know, you have not uh, an infinite number of uh, 
permutations or, or, or iterations of it, and you uh, uh, end up with something that isn't what probability would say you should have as a result. And I guess that's poker, right? That's uh, we're, we're discovering this all the time, that things that are supposed to happen don't always happen, uh, even when the probabilities suggest they will. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness for computer simulations that show you that indeed <laughs> seven is the most popular role, as well as more simple math that, you know, you don't you don't have to do a simulation. You can actually mathematically figure it out. But it's funny because I remember back when OpenFace became popular and I started, you know, trying furiously to calculate the value of Fantasyland. I also did it in a very similarly, like, <laughs> rudimentary way where I just yeah, got yeah, an Excel yeah. sheet and just like wrote down every value of Fantasyland that I had and I got to hundreds of them and and you know I also compared notes with some other friends of mine and somebody was like making fun of me they were like god this is like you know back in the wild west when you would like you know take ace king out and fives out and just like keep dealing <laughs> to see which hand was better <laughs> I guess it took them some time to figure out that that was indeed close to a flip right actually you look back at these old strategy books old poker strategy books and you see uh people have done the same kind of thing you know where they try to work out uh, the odds and probabilities, and they didn't—they didn't have the computers to help them, and so that they did that exact thing. They did this sort of uh, work where they had to do it by hand and deal hundreds of thousands of hands and figure these things out. It's funny because I do think there's like actually some value in that, like not necessarily to the extent of doing it for like weeks or months, but I think in like a small amount of time. Because one of, one of the ideas behind the grid, which I was really grateful because it seems like it resonated with you immediately when you wrote those pieces for Poker Nose and Poker Stars about the grid is that it's not about knowing math. It's also about feeling math. And I think that's something that can get lost if somebody tries to, you know, incorporate a lot of math into their game very quickly. And that was one of the concepts behind the grid that, yeah, we know that there's 169 hands, but sometimes we just kind of forget about a lot of these huge swaths of hands that we don't play. So, you know, just uh, going through some like really simple math by hand when, of course, you could do it with a calculator or with, um, you know, range tools. I, I think it has a lot of value. Yeah, I think, you know, there's and what we're talking about, there's so many things in, in life, generally speaking, now where we have, you know, computers and technology to help us solve these problems that we used to solve with with pen and uh, paper. And I agree totally that there's just something to that kind of doing the math yourself or just sort of working out sort of uh, these puzzles yourself, being able to kind of just look it up right away. It sort of makes the brain work in a certain way and, and excites, you know, your analytical, you know, abilities or energizes them uh, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, and as writers, of course, I think it particularly resonates the idea of writing it by hand or an MS Word. I was actually at uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas this summer after your book debuted, and you gave a discussion there as you had actually used the library extensively to research your book. And one of the discussion points of that was how poker and cheating were at one point nearly synonymous and that they really felt like they went hand in hand in some ways. And that started to dispel. And of course, now we have a game where there are cheating scandals that pop up from time to time, but a lot of younger poker players don't even really think of that at all when they think about the game of poker. So can you kind of chart that for us? I'm actually teaching my class again this semester. And so these, this recent cheating scandal that came up, I was able to share it with the, the class as kind of evidence that it's so easy to think about cheating as being just something that's in the past, that it's not 
something that is is around anymore. Uh, but that's obviously anywhere where there's money to be won, uh, there's probably going to be efforts to to get at it uh, without following the rules. But I think uh, listeners of your podcast will probably, as uh, of all the chapters in uh, poker and pop culture, there's one where I go through. It's kind of a longer chapter where I share kind of a an overview of the history of strategy books. And so it goes back into the 19th century where the first ones appeared. And what you find, uh, one of these sort of interesting themes that comes up in the early strategy books are a lot of references to the, all the cheating that's going on. And of course, you can find these stories in poker history too. But all these kinds of warnings, and in fact, even people writing you know, these early strategy books and kind of you know, being very apologetic about even suggesting poker might be something that their readers want to try because it's so dangerous uh, and risky, not just because the game itself is, is full of uh, uncertainty, but that you're going to encounter cheaters everywhere you go. And they'll include all sorts of, uh, you know, lists of cheating methods and advice about looking out for, you know, the different kinds of ways that people might cheat in the game. And it's so prevalent that you realize that's just part, it actually really is part of the game. It's not just uh, something that you maybe encounter here and there, but it's as you develop strategy uh, to win at poker, you also have to develop strategy to combat cheating or if you're on the on the dark side, I guess, uh, how to cheat in the game. But it's, it's definitely part of the game uh, through the 19th century, well into the 20th century. And then, as we see, it sort of continues to be that way. You're obviously safer uh, in a licensed and regulated card room uh, with lots of surveillance. Uh, but in a home game or in other kinds of environments, you're definitely going to encounter it. Absolutely. And I think that um, perhaps it's something about the nature of the deck of cards that you know, facilitates uh, cheating, just, just the physicality of it, right? And, th and that's something that, you know, really struck me in your book several times. I'm particularly one of the, the fascinating, like, history of poker in the Civil War, which it, it just, it's hard to imagine a time where just holding a deck of cards was considered as morally ambiguous. And like, you, you mentioned how soldiers would, you know, pick up cards from the ground you know, to kind of like hide that they had, that they were playing, you know, from the battlefield. It really is kind of striking this, uh, this difference that at once it's a super compact um, source of endless entertainment. And when I thought of that, I was also, I couldn't help but think of a smartphone, that like a deck of cards and a smartphone both kind of like just fit in your pocket and allow for just hours and hours and hours of dispelling boredom. And both of them are kind of a target for people who think that, you know, life should be more pure and you should embrace boredom. Anyway, your, your book really makes you think about a lot of things. But I, I did think of like this deck of cards is like very compact in both the positives and negatives of that. And maybe it's just kind of something about the essence of the deck of cards also makes it something that it's easy to cheat at. Yeah, those soldiers that and obviously the deck of cards is a lot handier to carry around than other things for the soldiers. The stories where they would go as they went off to battle, uh, they would ditch the cards because of the, you know, the moral objections to gambling and card playing. And they didn't want to be, you know, the, the calamity of maybe uh, dying on the battlefield and, and a pack of cards being found on their person. <laughs> Uh, by by those who, who found them. And then, of course, if they survived the battle, then they would come back and they would pick up the cards on their way back uh, to make sure that they had them. But yeah, that kind of, when people ask me about, you know, writing the book and about, you know, 
what kind of stood out for me as I wrote it. And of course, this talking about cheating is a is an interesting part of the story of poker. But just this kind of more general objection to poker uh, by society and by the culture that really is part of the story from the beginning to the present. You know, it's still around. And so as I sort of looked at poker and movies and television and magazines and all of these other contexts, it was interesting how in, in so many instances, whenever poker came up, like in a fictional story, it was there was these negative connotations. Poker was the cause of trouble in these stories. And that's when, you know, the poker game is where the, the violence happened and all the other bad things happened. That that continues to be kind of part of the the story it's the game that my little subtitle there is america's favorite card game but it's also the favorite card game to criticize and object to and censure and make illegal and prohibit as well but also i think that poker is a proxy for adventure and adventure meaning having a life full of travel and stories um lots of stories no not just a story of you know, your your wedding and the birth of your children, but like so many other intense stories that a lot of people who have like a regular job might not experience. And I think it actually retains that sense of poker as like a portal to adventure and travel. And that perhaps is the biggest positive connotation, in my opinion, of poker. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a great story generator. And it also allows us to uh, experience all kinds of things, uh, emotions and, and feelings, you know, having to do with taking risks and winning, you know, earning rewards or losing and the kind of, you know, the swings that go along with that, the kind of stuff that we wouldn't dare try, you know, in our, quote, normal life uh, where we would, you know, we don't like to uh, necessarily introduce all kinds of, you know, situations where we might run into danger. Yeah, poker is a great source for that kind of thing. Obviously, you know, people can overdo it when it comes to the risk taking and the other uh, sort of things that go along with poker. But for me, it's I agree, it's a great way to kind of, I don't know, enhance your life at the by playing poker. I, I'm interested for your take on something. So I feel like both chess, but poker, maybe even more so are, as you um, just quoted, uh, story, great story generators in that people who've never been classically trained, never went to college necessarily, never read a lot of books, if you ask them to like describe an intense poker hand that they played or they post on 2 plus 2, like a trip report with some key hands, I think it's remarkable how high the quality of the writing is. And that's why I think it's just like a magnificent experience for for some people because it teaches you how to tell a story even if you're not experienced in reading or studying and maybe it's that sense of beginning middle and end that every poker hand has and that's one of the reasons I I came up with the concept of the grid because I wanted to make sure that when I had my guests on they were forced to at least tell some type of story um have you also experienced that with like both your studies and your students yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I actually talk about that in the book a little bit at one point where I talk about poker as a uh, source of stories and how it's got, you know, a poker hand has that inherent kind of structure uh, to it. But then there's also, you know, the characters, there's necessarily some kind of conflict that, that is, is ready to talk about. And then there's a resolution and a winner and a loser and a hero and a villain, as we often we often use those words hero and villain to talk about 
the characters in a in a hand history uh, when we relate that. As you talk about, like you know, poker players being so good at telling stories about hands, I think part of it is because of that kind of the generic elements of good storytelling are already kind of there uh, for them to to use. But then they also they they do it so much and they hear stories and they then they tell stories back that that improves the quality and the attention to detail uh, that you might have in such a story. I think my students kind of pick up on that a bit. We talk about, you know, they get to read about, we actually read uh, fiction and we watch some movies and we talk about hands uh, now and then. And so it does kind of rub off where they, they get the idea that this attention to detail is, is good. And of course, I'm, when I grade their papers, I'm hammering away at them about the, you know, how, how they tell their, you know, present their arguments and tell their stories. And so I'm always encouraging that as well. But I think that they are sort of appreciating that part of, as we study poker, how it helps, how it's such a a sort of a, you know, a rich source of of stories. It's funny because I've been thinking about this topic, like for an article, talking about how people tell, describe hands. You know, when we hear somebody relate a hand history, um, and the story of a hand that they played, uh, just how much is revealed about the, the person. Maybe I'm talking about personality and, and, you know, just the values and that kind of thing, but also about their ability as poker players and just how much they give away uh, whenever they tell a story about a hand that they played. Uh, and I was trying to decide sort of what was the, you know, what were the factors that would kind of sway me to think this is a good or a good player or a skilled player or maybe someone who's lacking. And of course, attention to detail would be one factor um, that would be important. The more detailed they are, the more I sort of am going to be convinced that they're a good player. But also, I think sort of the emphasis on the result in the hand. Like when people tell stories, some people you hear sort of some like poker pros talk about a hand that they play and on your podcast, actually. And where the hand that they discuss, the result isn't nearly the most important part of the hand uh, for them. And then there's others for whom that's really what the whole story is about, (laughs) is whether or not they won the hand. And so that actually kind of gives you a glimpse into the person who's telling the story. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Kind of think of like some kind of like aristocrats type situation where there could be like some epic poker hand and you like hear how everybody else you just get you just play them the hand and then you just have a bunch of different people tell the story and see uh how people go like what direction they go and the punchline is the same in every story but uh just how what it's about is what makes it interesting yeah you do teach a class on american film and culture and poker um what do you think the most underrated poker movie is Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've got my chapter in there where that's the longest chapter in the book is is poker in the movies. And so, gosh, I have such a soft spot for A Big Hand for the Little Lady, uh, the 1966 comedy western uh, with Henry Fonda and Joanne Woodward, which poker players sometimes maybe uh, denigrate a little bit because the poker, it, it Basically, the whole movie revolves around this one big hand, and it's it's a little bit absurd, uh, kind of the way that the hand is presented, and and you know this could never happen. Poker players are always sort of objecting to the way poker is presented in movies because a lot of times there are these howlers uh, in terms of the inaccuracies. But it's such a it's such a smart, uh, funny movie, 
and I think maybe is deserving being put a little higher on the on the list of poker movies than it usually is. Not just because it has this sort of really funny, uh, sort of outlandish poker story that resembles some of the old poker stories, like in folklore, these old sort of funny stories about crazy hands. But it also sort of brings in the woman taking a seat at the table full of men and gets to play around a whole lot with, uh, you know, sort of gender roles and expectations in this setting of a of an old west poker game it's really great it's funny at the end of the chapter you mentioned and a movie that i actually got to see its premiere at the toronto film festival mississippi grind i Mm -hmm. i really liked it but it it did not do well like i didn't hear another word about it after i saw it i saw it in with some poker friends actually and we, we we all really liked it and yeah then i didn't hear another word about it so i guess it just didn't resonate at the box office yeah, that one actually did spring to mind when you said underrated uh, poker movies. Because yeah, yeah, that's I, I think especially among the m- more recent ones, and there's a lot of really not so great poker movies uh, from the last, you know, since the boom. Uh, and I write about some of those in the chapter. It's kind of fun, actually. It was fun to write about the bad movies uh, as well. Uh, but yeah, Mississippi Grind is great. The uh, the way it it sort of presents the low to medium stakes. Uh, poker scene and to me the story kind of reminds me of another very favorite poker movie of mine which is California Split which uh, has some of the great poker scenes in it but uh, where you have these kind of, it's kind of this buddy movie where you have the two buddies kind of traveling and playing poker it's it's really good I recommend Mississippi Grind yeah I like them both California Split is amazing too and it does have that same kind of like vibe I agree if you were going to bring back someone to life to tell a poker hand on the grid who do you think the best person would be? Like, what's the hand in your book that you wish you could have the person actually tell me the story? Oh, gosh. The the easy answer, the one that immediately leaps to mind, is anyone who was at the table uh, with Wild Bill Hickok uh, in the Aces and Eights hand, <laughs> where he was uh, killed uh, on August 2nd, 1876, uh, in Deadwood. Since we're going back in history, we could actually uh, ask Hickok himself to explain uh, what was happening in that hand. But that's probably the most famous written about uh, poker hand in history. And so that would be a great one to have someone come on the grid and talk about. They weren't playing No Limit Hold'em, of, of course, they were playing um, five card draw, right? Yeah, still, you could just cheat it and say it's an ace eight off, right? Right, right. They would, you would you'd have to figure out some way to fit them into the grid there. But yeah. Is, is So that was the dead man, the famous dead man's hand, where unfortunately he was facing the wrong side of the table, his back to the, the door, and was shot. Yeah, just think, just think about how we're, we're talking about that. Like, everybody knows those details, right? It's fascinating. You know, it's just a, it's a poker hand, but even in kind of the roughest, most general version of the story, we're already talking about details, like where people were seated. And, and other elements of the story. And of course, you go into it, you find sort of dozens of versions of the story where the details get, you know, there's lots of conflict in the way it's it's told. But uh, yeah, yeah, so that would be a great one. It, it makes me think about episodes of one of my favorite shows, The Sopranos, and where the, the um, gangsters were usually sitting in relation to the door. Because I'm sure the directors thought about that, right? Like sitting to the door and making sure that at least somebody had a good eye on that. Yeah, I write about The Sopranos in the book, and, and that's a, that's one of those shows. When they incorporated the poker, obviously it sort of fit very naturally into that uh, the milieu of that show. 
the people who are creating the movie or the TV show where they're they're kind of conscious of poker history and and things like that, where um, these little details would have they would resonate with people who are watching, and especially those who know something about poker history. Yeah, absolutely. What story in poker do you think most needs to be made into a movie that has never been? Oh boy, that's a great question. One of the things I talk about in the book is poker coming up in the context of warfare and military strategy. And of course, there's a connection uh, between the history of game theory and how poker ended up informing uh, game theory and its development. And then, of course, game theory ended up having an important role when it came to uh, the Cold War and nuclear brinksmanship and how the U.S. managed its relationship with the Soviet Union. And I think it would be really interesting to kind of maybe tell like a Cold War story, but emphasizing poker's important role in it as, you know, one of the parlor games that Oscar Morgenstern and John von Neumann were, it helped them when they they were first working out uh, game theory. Uh, And and maybe some kind of uh, film or a, a story that, that really helped highlight and emphasize, you know, poker's role in it. And, you know, without sort of, you know, cheapening the the high stakes of, you know, something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, showing how poker strategy was, and the idea of bluffing and these kinds of things were were part of that. Uh, It would be fun to kind of be able to present that, you know, in a way that was entertaining and, and also genuinely informative. That's a fascinating idea. Yeah, I, I think I meant to say like it could be obviously somewhat fictionalized. And I really share your feeling that in a, a lot of poker movies, as well as chess movies, by the way, I think that accuracy is a little overrated. I, I want to get mm-hmm. the spirit of poker and chess. If somehow the position is a little bit unrealistic, I don't feel as strongly about it as a lot of other people do. But it, the problem is that a lot of times that sloppiness reflects itself also in the spirit of the message. But if they're able to maybe tell an exaggerated hand, but still keep the spirit of poker in mind, um, then, you know, I'm, I'm kind of cool with it. Yeah, the last hand of the Cincinnati Kid is the great example of that exact thing, where I, I, as I write about it in the book, I'm not at all, not nearly as bothered by the, the improbability of a, a straight flush against the full house in this five card stud hand that some people are that they, you know, it just sort of knocks them right out of the movie when that happens. But for me, it's perfect. You know, it just fits very well with this story of the, uh, the kid uh, against the man and, and this sort of maturation that happens uh, in the character of, of Eric and at the end in that movie and at the end of the movie. Yeah, I, I agree totally. So do your students just get to watch movies all the time in your class or do they usually have to watch the movies for homework? <laughs> we do. Uh, we watch a lot of clips throughout the semester, so we're basically we're just kind of watching scenes. I save it for the very end of the semester because I kind of I think it works a lot better where they already know the history of poker and they already sort of can appreciate all the different ways that uh, sort of poker has sort of turned up uh, in in culture and then other kinds of storytelling. And then they watch the Cincinnati Kid, California Split, and Rounders. Uh, at the very end of the course. And so I feel like, you know, like with a movie like Rounders, where the the filmmakers there were very uh, conscious of poker history, and they can pick up on all kinds of neat little references and appreciate 
how poker is being used to tell a story uh, and create characters and situations after having uh, done that study. So we saved the movies till the end. Yeah, I mean, by the way, speaking of the um, writer of the Rounders movie, um, mm-hmm. Brian mm-hmm. Koppelman, he still seems to be very into poker, still plays a lot, tweets about it a lot. I really like his show Billions, and there was just such a phenomenal episode featuring poker and one of the main characters there, Taylor. That was definitely one of my favorite poker scenes. Yeah, I know, I know the episode you're talking about, and that's like, that was really a, a smart use of poker there. Not simple hand actually uh, in that episode where you have you know it wasn't you know like you see so often you know aces four aces versus four kings or something exactly it was something like a. I mean I can't remember their exact hand right now but I was thinking about that hand the other day because I was like if I was going to have that hand on the grid and by the way for those listening this was a hand where one of the the most brilliant characters on the tv show billions ended up making a really amazing call with a terrible hand at a very well-heeled charity event. I was thinking, like, who would tell the hand? Would it be the actress or uh, the writer? I think she makes a call with 10 high or something and kind of, uh, yeah, it's like, a, it was like the Stu Unger hand, the famous Stu Unger hand where, you know, they're able to sort of work out their, the opponent is bluffing and uh, that they can make a call with a hand with the, which the absolute value of the hand is so low. What was your English major in, by the way? Uh, it was actually, it was 18th century, restoration in 18th century. So I was writing about, uh, you know, Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope and all the, the early novels, Daniel Defoe. And did poker come across any of your early studies? Not really, because poker kind of postdates that period. Although they did, like, for instance, Swift and Pope, they did talk about, like, card games. It would come up in their satires and gambling would come up. Usually as this, you know, diversion where people are, are wasting their lives playing games like this. But yeah, no, there's really no overlap. Yeah, yeah, that's true, right? Because you you said you were doing 18th century literature, right? Right, right. Wow, well, anything else that you want to um, let listeners know about? I know that you have your book available on, on many places. Poker and Pop Culture, Telling the Story of America's Favorite Card Game. It's on Amazon as well as many other venues. And you can follow Martin at Hard Boiled Poker. But any special events or things that you want to let us know about? Um, yeah, with the book. Um, so there's the paperback, which is pretty uh, nice. Uh, I'm pretty pleased with how that came out. There's ebook. The ebook, if people are into that. Actually, if you get the ebook over at DNB Poker, there's a special appendix that goes along with it. Uh, where I did a list of the 100 best poker movies. And so I think you can only get that if you get the ebook over at DNB Poker. And then I recorded an audiobook version of it, which was quite an adventure. It's not a short book, so it took me a while. I feel like it's the kind of book where you can um you can read like a chapter at a time. You don't have to necessarily read this whole book at once. Um but the chapters are kind of discrete essays about different topics like I say poker and on television, poker in the movies, and that you can, you know, poker in the White House, talking about presidents playing poker, and that you can kind of pick it up and, and enjoy a chapter. So if you get an audio book, you can, maybe it'll it'll work for one of your drives to work. You can listen to a whole chapter and, and enjoy it that way. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that poker players really love podcasts and audiobooks. And um, part of the reason is that that's something for them to listen to while they're grinding, especially if they're grinding long hours playing cash games. A definite great fit for a lot of people. Although I have to say, because of the nature of your book, I think having a hard copy is particularly nice because you can kind of flip through it when you're interested in a particular topic. Like if I'm looking for a song about poker, you have a chapter about music and poker. I think that in those cases, it's really valuable to have a hard copy and it's, it is very well produced. Your publishers did a great job. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm like that too. I kind of, I like the feel of the book and being able to flip back and forth. And yeah, there's an index and, you know, you get the notes and all these things. You can uh, find things pretty quickly. It's a great addition to the poker literature, you know. Even though chess is not as um, popular in America as poker is right now, I just feel like chess literature and history is so much more um, prolific than poker. Uh, it's, it, it's kind of astonishing, you know, the, the difference. Like we have a museum devoted to chess in St. Louis. There are chess historians all over the world. They meet up to talk about collecting chess sets. And like from poker, it doesn't seem like there's as much activity. So I feel like what you're doing is really valuable. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely not. I mean, there's there's a few, you know, uh, definitely some some great titles, and I I write about them in the book. You can you can find me uh, praising uh, other uh, poker histories. So thanks a lot for writing the book and for coming on the Poker Grid. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Lo- loved it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent